Let's turn to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. Last week we were looking at Psalm 3 and we saw that King David had fled from his son Absalom, who was declared king of Israel, having stolen the hearts of the people. David, who before and during his reign had shown himself to be a strong and courageous fighter and military leader, fled with just a small number of men who remained loyal to him. Now imagine that in the sight of his fickle and disloyal subjects, David would have appeared to have been utterly forsaken by God as he fled Jerusalem. We can see that in verse 2. Well, we looked at that last week. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. And that really, I'm reading that, and of course that takes us to the cross as well. That's precisely what the people, the baying crowd were thinking and saying when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, when he was lifted up to die on that cross. And they just saw someone who they thought to be forsaken, completely forsaken by God. Utterly forsaken. However, things aren't always what they seem. And that takes us to our verses for this evening as we consider this evening, the Lord my shield. We're looking at verses three and four. The Lord my shield. But first of all, let's have a look at those verses. Verse 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Verse 3 starts with that word, but... We all know what that means, but obviously it's carrying on from what, what what went before. David prayed to the Lord, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. People thought that he was utterly forsaken by God, but thou art a shield for me. So much for all those people who imagined that David had no help from God. How wrong they were. David, who was a man of war, would have appreciated the importance of having the protection of a shield. And ultimately, he was acknowledging that he had the very best shield, didn't he? He had none none other than Jehovah God as his shield. The Old Testament has many verses that speak of the Lord as a shield, surrounding his people and protecting them. For example... Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision and said to him, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. That's a lovely passage. When you look at the first verses of Genesis 15, the word of the Lord coming to Abraham in a vision, you see that the word of the Lord is clearly the the. The, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. But anyway, that was the Lord coming to Abraham and saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield. 
And in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29, concerning the children of Israel, it is written, Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency, and thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. So even to the children of Israel, the Lord was a shield. In verse 3 in our psalm, David not only spoke of the Lord as being a shield for him, but also of being his glory and the lifter up of his head. Apart from anything else, what that means is that despite David being rejected by so many of his own people, he was still counting the blessings that he had received from the giver of every good gift, the giver of every perfect gift, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He was still acknowledging and praising the Lord, who, um, this is just a few things that I've thought of, who had chosen him from all Israel, the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, and he was nothing more than a shepherd boy when he was chosen to succeed Saul as king. It was the Lord who gave the kingdom to David and the Lord who exalted him. The Lord had preserved David wherever he went and had given him the victory over all his enemies, especially the greatest enemy of all, David's sin. David's confidence in God's protective care was so great that he said that the Lord was a shield for his glory. That is, the royal dignity that the Lord had conferred upon David when he called him to be the king of Israel. Despite there being many who rose up against David, he remained confident that the Lord would lift up his head. That is, that he would deliver him from all his foes and that he would raise him up to his royal throne once again. Spurgeon observed what he called a divine trio of mercies in verse 3. Look again at verse 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. And what Spurgeon saw in that verse, the trio of mercies, was defence for the defenceless, glory for the despised, and joy for the comfortless. And those divine mercies, when you think about it, they're the portion of all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just for David, King of Israel, but for all of us who trust in Jesus. With regards to the Lord being a defence for the defenceless, the Bible commentators speak with one voice when they say that Psalm 3 is about the Lord certainly being a shield for David, but so much so that the Lord surrounded him. He was a shield all about David, all around him. That is most certainly the case for all of you who have put on Christ, having been baptised into Christ. You really can think of God as surrounding you and shielding you. How would you think of the Lord Jesus Christ 
shielding you, surrounding you, uh, when, when we think of the New Testament scriptures. How about John chapter 10? The good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, said of his sheep, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Safe in the hand of Jesus, surrounded by his mighty hand. Safe in the hand of his Father. Think about it. You are safe and secure double safe and secure it doesn't get any safer than that safe in the hand of Jesus safe in the hand of your loving heavenly father talk about being a shield for you surrounding you that really is as it doesn't get any better the Lord has provided you with a shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked and with that shield You are to extinguish what? How about your lust, your pride, vengefulness, anger and various other evil thoughts and feelings that can so easily be inflamed when temptation comes your way and comes my way. The way to make use of the shield of faith is to look unto Jesus who is the object of your God-given faith. And to consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Consider the dying love of the Lord Jesus Christ for you, as you prayerfully read the word of God. Satan and his demons, the unbelieving world, not forgetting your own sinful flesh, are all to be stopped in their tracks and extinguished by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel promises, which can never be thwarted. All those fiery darts are to be stopped in their tracks by that shield of faith. The fiery darts coming from without and from within. Consider the fact that you've been reconciled to God by the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't end there either, does it? You've been, you've been reconciled to God by his death, but also Jesus was risen from the death on the third day. And because he lives, you live forevermore. Again, Jesus said of his sheep, they shall never perish. I give them eternal life. As the Apostle Paul said to the church in Rome, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God for that. But it doesn't end there. We do not have a dead saviour. Paul then said, much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, By the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
when you think about verses like that, you, you should appreciate that there is, you, you should forget any idea of you ever coming out or falling out of the hand of Jesus or out of the hand of his Father and losing your salvation. Again, if we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And of course that speaks of that ultimate, final deliverance from the very presence of sin when we go to, when we enter into the presence of the God of our salvation. We have the assurance, that, that assurance that I've just given you there, John chapter 10 and so many other places in the Bible. As for Spurgeon's observation that the Lord is a glory for the despised, the Lord brought you up also out of an horrible pit, didn't he, dear Christian? Out of the miry clay, and he set your feet upon a rock and established your goings. Before grace came, you were in a horrible pit, a miry clay, but no more. The Lord has delivered you from the power of darkness and has transferred you into the kingdom of his dear son. You who were once dead in your sins, the Lord has raised up and made to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19, having boldness, therefore brethren, having boldness, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You who were once far from God are now a royal priest, no less. Your citizenship is in heaven and the God of all creation is now your loving heavenly father. You have treasures laid up in heaven, the greatest of them being the Lord Jesus Christ, who is altogether lovely. Thirdly, Spurgeon. Can we help you? Thirdly, Spurgeon observed that the Lord is a joy for the comfortless. A joy for the comfortless. We might consider the Apostle Paul and his travelling companion Silas. There was a time when they were scourged they were cast into a dungeon in Philippi. Their feet were secured in the stocks. Doesn't get much more grim than that, does it? Were they downcast? Were they in despair? Not at all. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25 tells us that they prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. That's quite relevant that the prisoners heard them. It was audible, it was loud. They were singing praises to God, despite the predicament that they were in. You too rejoice in your various tribulations, and during those times when you suffer the reproach of Christ. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And he gives you his joy and because it is a joy of divine origin, not something that you've mustered up within yourself, Jesus gives you his joy. 
It is a joy that will endure, even in the most terrible times of tribulation. Let's move on to verse 4. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. (coughs) This verse is about a prayer of David, obviously, but it was not a silent prayer, was it? David cried unto the Lord with his voice. I don't suppose I'm the only one in here who prays silently, without voice, at certain times of the day and in various places, as I commit to the Lord the challenging situations that I find myself in. I might pray silently as I ask for wisdom from the Lord when I'm talking to someone about Jesus or I'm speaking to someone and I want to somehow bring the bring the conversation round to Jesus. And so even as I'm speaking to that person, I might pray for wisdom from the Lord and for the a door of utterance to be opened to me. I might pray for courage when I feel as if I'm being fed to the lions or cast into a fiery furnace, such as years ago, something that I often remind you of, years ago when I was a supply teacher in what seemed to be the most badly behaved class in the most out of control school in London, or so it seemed to me. The little mites in that class appeared not to share my love of maths, And they chose rather to fight each other and throw their books out of the classroom window. We were one floor up and I guess it was good fun to see the books fall to the ground or perhaps on someone's head if they got their target. Having been reduced to a quivering wreck, I spun round to face the front of the classroom and with my back to the pupils, I silently cried to the Lord for help. That prayer probably lasted a second at the most. Even so, the Lord heard my prayer and peace descended upon that classroom. It's not always so dramatic. Sometimes I'll just pray silently that God will be glorified in whatever I happen to be doing at the time. That's generally my prayer every morning. I don't say that I do glorify God But as a Christian, as you know, it is our desire to bring glory to God. Or I'll quietly give thanks for the food that I'm about to eat. And so it goes on. In the Bible, there are those who prayed silently to the Lord. For example, there was a time when a woman whose womb the Lord had shut up prayed that the Lord would give her a child. Her name was Hannah. And we're told that Hannah spoke in her heart and only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Even though her prayer was silent, the Lord heard her prayer and he gave her a child, Samuel. Another one was Nehemiah. He was a Jew and he was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes the king of Persia. I want to read to you from the book of Nehemiah. You can turn to it or just listen carefully. I'm going to read from (coughs) Nehemiah chapter 2. 
So you've got this Jewish man, Nehemiah, cupbearer to a Persian king, a pagan king. And the Persians were the masters of the Jews at the time. And I'm going to read to you Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 6. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I, Nehemiah, took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad, When the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, Speaking about Jerusalem, Lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? Look at this now in verse 4, or listen. So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is after the king has said to him, For what dost thou make request? Having seen that Nehemiah had a sad countenance. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favour in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. How long do you reckon that prayer lasted? It would have been a split second. The king of Persia asked him a question there. For what dost thou make request? The king wasn't going to sit around waiting forever for, for an answer. But even so, we're told, Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Again, it must have been one of those split second prayers. And then he gave his answer to the king. If it pleased the king. And he he had to tread very carefully. Because he was standing before the, the, the most powerful man in the world at the time. The king of Persia. If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favour favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto <coughs> Judah. Not only did the king send uh, Nehemiah, give him free passage to Judah, to Jerusalem, he became the governor of Judah. Nehemiah, the Jewish cupbearer for a pagan king, became the governor of Judah. And he oversaw the rebuilding of the city. So you see that there, that uh, split second prayer. I can't imagine it was any more than that. And what a wonderful answer to prayer that was. Clearly the Lord does not need to hear our voices. We don't have to pray long prayers either. In fact, God knows what is weighing heavy in our hearts and on our minds, even before we utter the first word. Even so, there are many times when we pray out loud, oftentimes when I'm not busy talking to other people, obviously out loud, or confession time when I'm not busy talking to myself audibly, 
I'm busy talking to God out loud. So I'm talking to other people out loud, talking to me out loud, talking to the Lord out loud. Also, we pray out, pray out loud at our prayer meetings so that others can participate in the prayer requests and the petitions that are being made to God. And providing that we agree with those whatever's being prayed and we don't really see any heresy in what's being prayed, we might add our, our amen at the end of those prayers. And so we enter into at the prayer of another person. Furthermore, as can be seen, In Psalm 3 and verse 4, there are times when prayer reaches heaven, not just audibly, but as an audible cry. Look at it again. Verse 4, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. He cried unto the Lord. It's as if the anguish is so great that you just want your prayer to be heard above every other prayer that's been prayed, that's being prayed at that moment in time from all the other places in the world. You really want God to hear your prayer. The most notable example of an audible cry to God was the Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. The Greek word that's translated fear in that verse is only found twice in the whole of the New Testament and it describes a reverent submission to God's will. And that just about sums up everything that the Lord Jesus Christ did, even in death. For example, the night before the incarnate Son of God was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die, he prayed, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That cup of all the sins of all that Jesus came to save, did not pass from him, did it? Even so, his prayer was heard in that he feared God. His strong crying and his tears were answered in that God's will was accomplished. God was glorified at the cross. Last of all, we see David in verse 4 crying out to God. And there's nothing wrong with crying out for help. If you were upstairs in your bedroom and your house was on fire, I trust you you wouldn't think twice about opening your bedroom window, sticking your head out the window, screaming for help. It's either that or you burn in the fire. You'd be crying out for help in the hope that the, fi- the, the firefighters would come and rescue you. I can remember when I was a lot younger and I, I, I was well and truly lost in some woodlands in the dark of night. I didn't fancy being in, in that woodlands all night long. I couldn't move. It was so dark. Everywhere I'd step forward, I just seemed to step into a tree or into a bush. Pitch black. 
I really didn't want to stay there all night. And so I yelled for help, really shouted out loud for help. And sure enough, I was rescued by two men who came with their torches and rescued me. I felt a bit silly, admittedly, but I didn't actually care. I was glad that I'd been rescued. And feeling a bit silly, a bit embarrassed, it really didn't matter. And they were most kind anyway. They they just rescued me and uh, I went home. Infinitely greater than being rescued from dangerous situations in the world and even life-threatening situations is being saved or rescued from your sin. And we've all sinned, every one of us. We all come short of the glory of God. We all richly deserve to be eternally punished. However, the good news is that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, let me just say to you, if you were in your bedroom and the house was on fire, you would shout out of your window for help. You'd have to be crazy not to. So why would you not cry out to heaven to be rescued when the wages of sin is death? Everlasting punishment in hellfire. Therefore, if you have never done so, (coughs) repent, be baptised, calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Amen.